This morning, we're going to be in the book of Malachi, so you can open up your Bibles to the book of Malachi. This is the final message in what has been essentially an 11-part series. We've gone through essentially all the minor prophets. We have combined a few of them, and together we've been looking at the reality of God's love expressed in a portion of Scripture where we may not have been able to have clearly seen it before. So often people think about the minor prophets, they look at the minor prophets, and they think it's all about judgment, condemnation, destruction. And in many ways, they are all about that, because that was the message of God for his people in light of their disobedience. But at the same time that all that judgment and condemnation is being pronounced upon them, you really see standing behind all those furious clouds the shining bright reality of God's love for his people. And in every single minor prophet, we've had the opportunity to go and look at, we've seen a different uh, aspect of God's love for his people. And the resulting picture, if you've been able to be here for the majority of those messages, should be for you really a multifaceted look at the love of God as it is impacted by all of his various attributes, as those attributes of God all come together and combine, you really are able to see, as you look book by book, a comprehensive picture of God's love for us. And it's been my hope and prayer as we've studied um, these minor prophets that uh, the, the picture that you are able to see of the love of God will cause you to understand the magnitude of his work on your behalf And therefore, you will grow to love him more as you see his love on full display for you. That's really been why we've been trying to show you the reality of God's love, because it really is when you begin to see and understand the love of God that you in turn grow to love him. And it is your love for him that ultimately drives your sanctification and obedience. So if you're asking the question, how do I grow in my ability to obey God more, to obey his commands better? How do I grow in my sanctification? The answer is, you need to love God more. And if the question is, well, how do I love God more? The answer is by looking at his love on fullest display for you. And that is exactly what we have been trying to accomplish. We've looked at the books just to review for all of your sakes. Uh, The books of Obadiah and Joel, we saw the eternality of God's love. We saw the reality that it never changes, it never goes away, it is always there for his people. We looked in the book of Jonah at the compassion of God's love as God put Jonah to shame. Jonah, the prophet of God, had no compassion upon those who needed the truth, but God had infinite buckets of compassion. We looked at the book of Amos and we saw the justice that is simultaneously there and resident with the love of God, we, we saw an incredible picture of the grace of God from the prophet Hosea, right? Remember? As God demonstrates his willingness to continually offer something that these people did not deserve. We looked at Micah and we saw the incomparability or the transcendence of God's love. Um, for those of you who were here last Sunday night, I apologize. You got a bit of a double dose on that one. Uh, But we saw the transcendence that God's love is like no other God and no other love. We looked at the books of Nahum and Habakkuk, and we saw the power that goes along with the love of God. We looked at the book of Zephaniah. We saw the purity of God's love. And then we looked at Haggai and Zechariah, and we began to understand that his love is always present with us, always buoying us through life's storms and difficulties, And that this is just simply who our God is. It is who he was when these words were first written over the period of about 300 years to the people of Israel. And hopefully you've begun to understand, I know that you all knew this beforehand, but hopefully you all understand now that the love of God, his nature, his character, it has not changed or shifted one little bit since the days that these words were written. Really, if you look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, just to give us a a brief preview of what's to come later on today, we see that stated very clearly, right? The love of God is the same today as it was for them. Malachi 3, 6, it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Right? It's an ironclad statement of truth. 
There is no wiggle room. He does not disguise himself. That's what that word means. He does not mask himself or, or really morph himself. He's not some kind of larger-than-life transformer who's always shifting into being whatever he needs to be for the moment in which he finds himself. He is the Lord, and he does not change. And the reality then, and found in verse 6 there of Malachi 3, is that you are not consumed, right? The love of God is so constant, it is so on display that the ramification for us is that it preserves us and brings to us salvation. And that is really where we're going to be driving here this morning together, is that the love of God is a salvific love. This is the God who saves. That is the ultimate fruit and fruition of the love of God. It is our salvation. Now, this weekend, just to get ourselves into this topic here, I I was amazed. It was kind of an interesting thought. My wife, from time to time, enjoys going to Goodwill and uh, just kind of browsing through the shelves because there's all sorts of undercover treasures that you can find in Goodwill. There was one time that I went along with her because we were just out and about town. We didn't have the kids. And she found what she told me was a very, very expensive crystal punch bowl, right? That she said, on the market, whatever the market is, uh, this would go for about 400 bucks. And I said, wow, it was some Waterford crystal thing. You know, I didn't know what it was. And so she handed it to me and dutifully, I'm carrying it around the store and following her around and... I mean, it was a treasure, okay? And at one point, she says, come over here and look at this. And I went over there and looked at that, and I happened to set the punch bowl down. (laughs) You all know, you've been there before, right? (laughs) And I looked at what she was pointing out to me, and I turned around, and the punch bowl was gone. I mean, it was like a magician had just touched that thing, and bamoose, gone. I didn't know how it happened. It was not a good thing. But we worked through it, and it it turned out okay. (laughs) Um, but she does enjoy going every once in a while just to, just to see what's there. And yesterday she came home with a 50 cent globe because our daughters have been wanting to have a globe so that when I travel for work or they're trying to figure out where to grandma and grandpa live, they can see on the, in the, on the world map exactly where people are and where we're going and that sort of thing. So she came home 50 cents, this globe. And, and I was looking at it with Emma And she asked the question, because I was showing her where we live, where grandma and grandpa live, where everybody lives in in North America. And she says, well, is that where Jesus came? And I said, no, let me show you where Jesus came. And so I I, I spin the globe, got over to Israel, and it was so small on the globe that you couldn't even begin to see it. I mean, it was like a little tiny sliver dot that was right there in the Middle East, right? And I put my my little finger over top of Israel and Egypt, right? And it covered no more than just the, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? The tip, there it is. (laughs) Big theological one this morning, got stumped by. The tip of my little fingernail, right? It, It covered that little space. And she said, you mean to tell me that he never got on an airplane and went to North America? I said, no. Never went on an airplane, never went to North America, never went to South America, never, never came over here. And she says, so he was just over here. And, and she covered all of Africa and Europe and Asia with her little hands. And I said, no, 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 he didn't go into any of those places. He only went to this one place that is covered by the tip of my little finger. And it was amazing to me because in that moment, it struck me that our Lord landed on this planet with the force more than the force of a million nuclear bombs, right? He, he landed on this planet in one place, a tiny little out-of-the-way place, and yet his work and his love for mankind was so profound that it was able to cover the entirety of the globe. His work was sufficient, therefore, for every single one of us who have never been to Israel. His work is effective on behalf of sinners in places that he never went when he was here on the earth. Now, I know God is omniscient, and so I know that God is everywhere, but when Jesus Christ was here upon this earth in a physical body, he never made it to those places. And yet, his work is sufficient for us who live here today in Los Angeles, California. God's covenants, his promises, 
His love for mankind that were all fulfilled in the person and work of His Son are sufficient for salvation for you and for me. We are all able to experience the reality of God's love together knowing that He alone is capable of saving us from our sins where we are totally incapable. Now, I tried to explain all that yesterday to my five-year-old and he did not get too far, but we'll get there. But in reality, that's exactly the message of Malachi here before us this morning, is that our God is a saving God. And the message of Malachi is a powerful message on the love of God translating into his desire to save his people. And it stands for us really as a huge, massive, black punctuation mark on the end of this Old Testament saga that we've been slogging our way through. There really is very little known about the prophet Malachi other than his name meant my messenger. If you look at the very first verses of the book, you'll see that there are no details really given at all. It's just the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Who's Malachi? We don't really know, but boy, did he have a message for these people. Tradition says, the Jewish tradition says that he was a member of the great synagogue that was formed by Nehemiah after the exile for the specific purpose of protecting the truth. And most likely it's a book, if you look at all the evidence from inside the book, because we don't really know who he was or when he wrote, but if you look at his message and some of the statements he makes, it really fits best about a hundred years after the prophet's of Haggai and Zechariah that we looked at last time. It really is a book that probably more than likely took place during the time of Nehemiah, right? Where the people have come back to the land, it's a mess. Ezra, Zerubbabel come back and they, they rebuild the temple. Haggai and Zechariah say, get it rebuilt, put it back together again, put your priorities where they need to be. And so the people do that. And then there's a bit of a problem because they expect that when the temple is completed, that God will return and inhabit it and dwell in it and be their king and fulfill all the promises that he had promised to them. They expected that when they put the last brick on that building, that God would come and be their king. And yet, dozens of years have gone by. The walls of the city are still a wreck, not rebuilt. The people are trying to be faithful. They're trying to worship, and yet... By and large, all of them have begun to doubt the reality of God's promises to them. They've begun to doubt the faithfulness of God to them as a people. And so Nehemiah comes back and he begins to rebuild the city walls. And when Nehemiah shows up, he finds out that the people are in a state of spiritual shambles. And Nehemiah spends 12 years trying to put them all back together again and then he has to leave to go back to the king of Persia to get more permission to stay there in Jerusalem. And, and while he's gone, everything falls apart again. On the outside, these are people who seem to care about God, but inwardly they are adrift in the midst of a very turbulent sea. And if you've read the book of Nehemiah, you understand a little bit about that turbulence. And, and it really is most likely, this is Pastor John's conclusion, that Malachi wrote his book during the period of years while Nehemiah was out of town. So Nehemiah comes into town, tries to fix things for 12 years. Nehemiah leaves town to go get more permission from the king of Persia, and everything falls apart while he's gone. And that is most likely the point in time at which Malachi wrote his book. Everything's a mess. The the people are divorcing their Israelite wives so that they can go marry the wives of foreigners. The people are, 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 are seeing the priesthood um, devolve and disintegrate before their very eyes. And, and they are not doing the things that they knew that they should be doing because they did not have good shepherding. And so Malachi the prophet comes in with a direct, forceful, pointed style. And, and he starts the book by declaring God's love for his people because they were doubting it. Chapter 1, verse 2, he says, I have loved you. But you say, how have you loved us? And for us who have been surveying all of Old Testament history, we scratch our heads and say, are you absolutely out of your minds kidding me right now? 
I mean, we've seen, we've chronicled the love of God on display for his people time after time after time in the face of failure after failure after failure. And here God is saying to them, I still love you. Don't ever question that. And their response is to say back to him, prove it. How have you loved us? Show us. And so the book of Malachi begins to set out and demonstrate exactly what that looked like. You see, these were people who were insensible to the great love of God that had already been demonstrated to them. They were so lacking in spiritual perception that when their deeds pointed out to them that they were doing wrong, they saw no harm in their sinfulness. And so Malachi comes in to remind them that God's love for them was completely undeserved, and yet in spite of the fact that it was undeserved, it had not wavered, not even once, over the millennia that they had been unfaithful to their God. And their response is to ask the question, well, how have you loved us? And they reward God's love with dishonor, disobedience, and total ignorance of the great reality of the promises that he had made to them. So Malachi is seeking to demonstrate to them that the love of God demands that he deliver salvation to those whom he has chosen. That was a message there that was very true to them. And it is also a message that is very true for us as well today. And, and my hope is that this time in Malachi 3 is going to be a message of, we'll call it mass encouragement. Because when you're tempted to be discouraged in your own walk with Christ, do not forget when you are tempted to wonder, where is the love of God? I don't feel it right now. When you're tempted to look around you and say, this is not the way that things are supposed to be. God promised to be faithful to me. How has he forgotten about his promises to me? When you're tempted to think those things, never forget that the one who began a good work in you will most certainly perfect it to the day of completion in Christ Jesus. You see, he is the one who is responsible for your salvation. And that promise is going to be reiterated again in Malachi 3 here today. But if he's responsible for your salvation, then he will also be the one who will justify you. He will be the one who purifies you. And ultimately, he will be the one who glorifies you. And you can trust that he will do those things because you can trust that he does love you. Hasn't he already shown it clearly? through the sending of his son. What greater love has any man than this that he would lay down his own life for his friends? He loves you. And so, as we've gone through this series, if, if you've been convinced of the love of God through the minor prophets, and you must have been because we've seen it demonstrated and we've tracked it through the pages of Scripture, if you, if you see God in the greatness of who He is and you're convinced that He is a God of love, then you must also now be convinced of His sovereignty and your salvation as well. He will accomplish His work in you. So don't be discouraged. Don't allow yourself to question him like these people were doing. Look at Malachi 2.17. Don't be like this, Malachi 2.17. Malachi says, look, folks, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And look at their response. They say, well, how have we wearied him? And Malachi says, essentially, I mean, I'm, I'm reading between the, I'm exegeting the white space now. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the force of the text. It says, what are you talking about, right? What is wrong with the gray matter between your ears, folks? That's what Malachi says. He says, here's what you say. Here's how you've wearied him. You say that everyone who does evil is good and that God delights in the evildoer. Or... If you're not questioning and if, if you're not misinterpreting that which is good versus evil, you're saying, where is God? He's not here. That's for sure. Malachi says, after all the things that you've been through, after all the things that you've seen, your continued questioning of God on the face of his obvious and awesome love and commitment to you is wearisome. It's wearisome to the soul. So this morning, our, our task is to not become wearisome in our discouragement with life, 
It's not to become questioning about the reality of who God is and what He's done for us. It is to take great confidence in the promises of salvation that He has delivered to us. Because the love of God demands that He deliver salvation to those whom He has chosen. So first this morning, I want us to see the way that the love of God guarantees salvation in chapter 3, verse 1. That was all a long introduction to get to where we're going. The love of God guarantees salvation. That's the first thing we see about this salvific love in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now, this was important to these people because they were doubting whether or not God was ever going to follow through on His promises. Look at verse chapter 3, verse 1. God says, Okay, if you're doubting, if you're not going to believe me, let me reiterate my promise to you. He says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In the face of their doubting, in the face of their uncertainty, in the face of their questioning of God, God, rather than getting tired of them and shuffling them off to the side and saying, enough, I'm done, I've had it with you, God doubles down on his promises here in chapter 3, verse 1, and he says, okay, let me draw you a picture now. That's what's going on here in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, I'm going to put some diagrams and some arrows in there so that when I do come to display my love to you, you cannot possibly miss it if you tried. And he says, there's going to be a messenger who shows up who's going to clear the way before the Messiah ever even arrives. And that way, when the messenger gets here, you'll have warning that the time for the fulfillment of my love on your behalf has come. And really, there's kind of a note of exasperation in chapter 3, verse 1. And God is saying, enough of this mess. He had, he had sent them the priests. He had sent them the kings. He had sent them the prophets. They had heard from the mouth of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, and Zechariah. And here comes Malachi. That is an answer on your quiz if you need that, by the way. <laughs> and still, they don't Listen, and God is saying here in chapter 3, verse 1, the next time you hear from me, it is going to be when I come in a physical form and stand myself in the middle of you. There is nothing else to be said to convince you people that I love you. That's what God's saying. He says essentially in chapter 3, verse 1, I am coming. The next words you hear from me will be from my own lips as I stand myself in your midst. And to make sure that you know that it's me, I am going to send my messenger to clear the way before me. God is promising these people that he's going to dispense with all the intermediaries and he is going to come himself. So how would they know that he had come? Well, there would be a sign that the love of God had come, that the salvation of God had come, there would be a messenger and it would be made very clear exactly who he was and what he was here to do. God was not going to slip into their midst under cover so that they might be able to miss him. It would be obvious. And the language that he uses here in, in the first couple words of chapter 3 is that it's, it's coming soon. It's, it's imminent. That's what he means by behold. It's a word that means to, to see, look up, get your eyes off yourself and look up. Behold, I am going to do this thing and I'm going to do it soon, God says. And he, he says he's going to clear the way before me. And that really is imagery that's often used in the ancient world and even in the Old Testament where in their world there would often be a messenger who was sent ahead of a coming king to announce as a herald that the king is now coming. Make way for the king, right? And many times there would also be work crews that would go out with that herald, crews that were responsible to smooth out the road, to straighten out any kind of curves, to put bridges across any valleys or dips to make sure that the king had a clear pathway all the way to his destination. And God is saying, you will not be able to miss my love for you because I am going to send a messenger ahead of me to announce my own arrival. And that happened 
right? The messenger is John the Baptist. We know that because we know our New Testaments. Turn with me over to the book of Luke. Look what happens in the book of Luke. It's a direct fulfillment of the prophecy that's given to us here in Malachi chapter 3. In Luke chapter 1, verse 14, you see the angel Gabriel coming to the priest Zacharias. And in verse 14, we find this statement. You will have joy and gladness. Well, that's pretty normal, right? Every single parent has joy and gladness when their child is born. At least they should. If they don't, something's bad wrong. But then this statement. And many will rejoice at his birth. Why would many people be rejoicing at the birth of John the Baptist, a guy who was going to eat grasshoppers and run around clothed in camel's hair? Because he was the messenger that God had promised. And as soon as he opened his mouth, people who were spiritually attentive would understand that the one who comes directly after this one is God himself. That's why they would rejoice. Verse 15, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. Oh, if my kids were like that. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go, here it is, as a forerunner before him, capital H, in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then he quotes the book of Malachi, chapter 4 now, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. Go over to Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And here it is. Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Itruria, and Trachonitis and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Two full verses of explanation. Genealogy, geography, timetabling stuff. Why is all that there? To mark the exact day that this now happens because it's a really, really big deal. The messenger was here. And it says this, And the messenger came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, here it is, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Fill up the valleys. Raise up the mountains or bring low the mountains. Straighten out that which is crooked. Smooth out the roads. Why? Because all flesh is about to see the salvation of God. It's amazing stuff. You go over to Matthew chapter 3. And you see it happening before their very eyes. Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. Here it is, the handoff. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? John is saying, I know exactly who you are. I'm the messenger, and you are God. But Jesus said, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us all to fulfill all righteousness. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You see, God here in Malachi chapter 3, go back all the way 400 years before those events took place. God was saying to a doubting people, I am going to save you. You doubt my love for you? Let me prove to you that I love you. I'm going to save you. And here is exactly how you will know that that is what is taking place. How would they know God's love? Because they would find God in their own midst. Keep going in verse 1. It doesn't just say, I'm going to send a messenger to clear the way. But the obvious implication is that once the way is cleared, He would be coming. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, He is coming. They would know the love of God because they would find the messenger of God's covenant now in their own midst. 
the one who had come to explain and fulfill all the promises that God had been making to them for 2,000 years, would come, and look at this, he would come into his own temple. He would be to them the messenger of God's covenants, God's promises. He would be the one there to explain to them all the great realities of, of what salvation would mean. He comes into his temple and God is saying, I, far from having forgotten about you, far from not being present amongst you, the next time you hear from me, it's going to be when I am there with you and I will bring you great salvation. Here we find that the angel of the Lord, the one who has been present every time essentially that God has made a promise to his people, is Jesus Christ himself. You see, Christ showed up and, and throughout the whole Old Testament, you see this angel of the Lord there making promises to his people. I will do this. I will do that. I will save you. I will deliver you. And now God is saying, don't doubt me. My salvation is guaranteed for you. And the same one, that same angel, the, the one who has always been the messenger delivering news of my covenants with you, and behold now, the text says, he is coming to bring the promised salvation. It's amazing. God's presence amongst his people, it equals salvation. And, and God makes a promise to his doubting, wearisome people. Next time you hear from me, it's going to be a birth announcement that I have shown up. And these people doubted God's commitment to them. His response is an explicit promise of their salvation. He says, I will be your God. You will be my people and you will find salvation from your sin. You see, there is no way that God would not now, after all this time, not fulfill the promises that he had been making. His love for his people, explained by Moses, echoed through the centuries, all the way down through Joel, Jonah, and the rest of the prophets, through, through triumph and through destruction, through this long chain of unbroken unfaithfulness, God had always shown himself to be faithful. His ongoing, undying love for them that they had always seen at every turn, it guaranteed that he would deliver on his promises to them. He would bring them and He would bring us, by extension, our salvation. Far from walking away from a wearisome folk, He doubles down and says, I am coming, and I am coming soon. You see, this is the fullest expression of God's love for His people in the midst of a trial. Let's turn it back to ourselves now. In the midst of a difficulty... How do you know that God still loves you and that He is present with you? Because we don't look forward to the coming of the Savior. We look back upon it, right? We've already seen the love of God on fullest display for us. The promise that God is making here in this text to these people, we have already seen the fullest fruition of it. And, and that is the great proof of His love for you. So, this morning... Whatever you may be facing in your life, whatever trials you're walking through, whatever, whatever difficulty the course of a fallen life has brought into your world here today, do not doubt. Do not be a wearisome people. You see, God makes promises, but He always, without fail, fulfills those promises. And His message to these people in chapter 3, verse 1, was to say, I'm going to double down on my promises to you, and I'm going to re-promise all the promises I already made. Far from walking away, I'm coming to you. And we've seen that Jesus did indeed come. You see, you have guaranteed promises that have already been fulfilled in Christ. And so your ability to take comfort and encouragement in those promises is so much more and far greater than that of the Old Testament believers who were reading this text. They looked forward to it in faith we look back upon it as history. And it's that awareness that gives us the ability to look forward into the future and know that everything God has promised us that we have not yet experienced, His love will most certainly deliver to us. You see, God's salvation, it is, it is guaranteed for us. That's what the love of God does for you, for me, and for these people.
But Malachi goes on in chapter 3 here, verses 2 through 5 really. He tells us that not only does the love of God guarantee salvation, but it also produces purification as well. And here was the key question that these people should have been asking as they got down into verse 2. And it's the key question that everyone who does not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior should also be asking in light of the fact that God was going to come and live with these people. You see, when the unexpected day comes, when the King of all the universe shows up, how do you expect to survive His gaze? That's what He says in chapter 3, verse 2. But who can endure the day when he does come? And who can stand when he appears? You see that word there, endure, it carries the idea of holding on to something or seizing on to something. It's really, you can put in your mind the image of someone who is hanging on to a pole in the middle of a hurricane, right? They've got their arms wrapped tight around this thing, but we've got gale force winds here, 200 miles an hour. It's going to rip anything and everything, including the pole itself, right up out of the ground and blow you away. That's the force that comes along with the advent of the king. You see, he comes not just to save those who are his people and who cling to him, but he comes to judge those who have clung to themselves for their own salvation. And Malachi says, how do you expect to live when he comes back? Figure it out, folks. Get it right and restore your faith in his ability to save you because if you don't, you will die. And that's the key question before every man. How can a man be made right with God? It's the most fundamental question. How am I supposed to survive the storm of God's wrath? If we cannot make ourselves pure and impurity brings death, then how do we fix that? Well, keep reading in verse 2. We don't fix it. That's the answer. God fixes it for us. Look at what happens. When he shows up, he will be like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. What's he saying there? He's saying that God is going to burn away all that which is unfaithful and he is going to purify all that which is faithful. You see, the fire was meant to burn away all the impurities. And the heat of the furnace meant to get rid of all the defilement. It, it meant to take away the content of all that was wrong with them. And, and for those who refused to cling on to the promise of God's loving salvation that he came to offer, they would be burned away as chaff or dross, really. That's the idea there behind a refining fire. But for those who believed, they would be purified with the fuller's soap. Now, that takes a little bit of understanding because for those of us who live in the modern world, we don't really have the same kind of soap that was used in the ancient world, right? We're not talking about antibacterial, calming, moisturizing, lavender-scented hand soap here, okay? It's a harsh lye made out of potash or charcoal that whitens and starches and, and takes away the stain of something. Right? We all have stains that are ground deeply into the fabric of our very souls, stains that no matter how hard we scrub or no matter how hard we put our, our back into it with some elbow grease, the stain never, never goes away. And yet, we're unacceptable because of it. And yet here in this text, we find that it is God who is the one who will purify us, right? He is the one who has the only kind of soap that can possibly work. Last week, I read a book about the discovery of how to fight bacterial infection, right? It was an amazing story that really came up out of a Nazi laboratory during World War II, where there was this, this uh, medical student who was a, was a doctor and a nurse in a battlefield hospital in the, on the Russian front during World War I. And he saw men dying by the droves, hundreds of them, thousands of them. Not because they had been shot, not because they had parts of their body blown off, but because they were getting infections from diseases. And the disease would, would invade the, the, the body, the, the germs would come into the body, and it would, it would cause there to be great impurity, right? 
where there would be rotting of flesh. There would be the, the, the infection of, of a person's wound until it ultimately took their life and destroyed them. And this particular doctor couldn't handle it anymore. And, and after the war, when so many men were falling apart because of the horrors they had seen, this doctor went into the field of what they called chemotherapy at that point, right? And for them, that just meant that you were trying to treat bacteria with chemicals. And to date, all the way up until the mid-1930s, never once was a bacterial infection ever treated correctly by a chemical. When you were infected by some kind of bacterial infection, you basically prayed and hoped that you got better or you died. That was it. There was no other alternative. I mean, this is the 1930s. I know people who were born before then. That's crazy. But this guy in his laboratory decided to begin to experiment with different kinds of purifying agents. And he tried for decades to figure things out. And he really, we ought to hold a memorial for all the mice that he killed because at one point in the book, the book talks about how that there were no more mice to be found in all of Germany because he had killed all of them, which most of the wives and mothers were saying, thank you. But the point was that all the soaps that he was using were so potent and so powerful that the chemicals killed the agent, right? A soap that kills you is not helpful. <laughs> Go figure, that was my takeaway from the book. But eventually he stumbled upon the right solution, something that would kill the bacteria, something that would remove the stain and really even reverse the infection, but not kill the host. And it became this worldwide race to who could patent and create this drug the fastest. Amazing book. But that's exactly what's happening here, you see. We don't have a soap that is powerful enough to cure the infection that resides within our souls. It, it's as though our souls are filled up with this gas gangrene and they need to be amputated out or we will die. And we have no antibacterial antibiotic to stop the spread of the infection. And yet for those of us who turn to the Lord, see the salvation that He offers, we're not consumed as though with fire. Instead, we are purified as with soap. Where He takes us with the only soap that could possibly remove the stain that exists within our soul, the stain that we have put there with our own sin, and He washes it away and whitens us so that we are like new, better than when we were born, already filled and indwelt by sin. You see, God is going to do this. He is going to purify His people as a nation and He will purify you and me individually. Why? So that you and I and His nation Israel can someday live in full harmony and relationship with Him having been restored. He then gives us this powerful image in verse 3. It says, God will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. It's a powerful image that we, again, don't understand because I don't know when the last time you melted a pot of silver was, uh, but I've never done that. But it's a powerful image that everyone in this world would have understood. You see, a refiner of silver, a smelter of precious metal, sits before the crucible and he watches the intensity of the fire. He watches the metal as it's being melted down and purified. And, and as that metal ore melts, the dross, all the impurities, it, it rises up to the top. And it's the job of the refiner then to skim off all those impurities and get rid of them until there is no more impurity whatsoever left in that metal. And the way by which the refiner is able to know that there's no more impurity is when he's able to stare down into the crucible and see his own reflection back in the melted metal, right? He's able to stare down into the pot of fire. And when he sees his own face staring back up at him, he knows impurities are gone and it is pure. And that is exactly the image that is given to us here in verse 3 of the work that God is doing in the lives of his people and in your life and in mine, you see. We need to be purified. 
And yet God, just like that smelter, he is applying the heat of affliction and and discipline until he can look at his own people and see his image staring back up at him, having been made pure. That's what's happening there. And the result? Look at the end of verse 3. It's amazing. So that his people may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. The whole point of this purification is so that they can present themselves as being righteous. You see, they cannot purify themselves. They needed to be purified. We cannot purify ourselves. We need to be purified. If you're going to live with God as your God and and live in relationship to Him, with Him in your midst, then God is the one who must do the purifying in your life. Because when there, is purif- when there is impurity, there is no relationship. But when there is purification that has taken place, you see, now we're able to live with God in perfect harmony with Him. And to the faithful ones, right? To the faithful ones, this, pur- this process of purification is a saving process. Look at verse 4. Then, once the purification has taken place, the offering of Judah and Jerusalem, I love this, will be pleasing to the Lord. That word pleasing, let's drill down on that for a minute. It's a, it's a verb that means to be pleasant or to please someone. It only occurs seven times in the Bible. And in three other cases, it refers to a sacrifice or a meditation that is sweet to the Lord or, or pleasing to Him. It's used elsewhere of the pleasantness that comes with a good night's sleep, right? Where you wake up refreshed and you, you feel pleased, right? It's used in the Song of Solomon as, as Solomon's lover, right? Or the fulfillment of his desire. It is, it is exceedingly pleasing. It is to be sweet. See, to those who are faithful, the process of purification makes us pleasing to the Lord. It makes it so that we can have full relationship with Him, to be accepted by Him. But... For those who do not believe in the offer of love and salvation that God has made, it doesn't turn out so well. Look at verse 5 as we keep marching down through this passage. To the unfaithful, the process of purification ends up meaning judgment. It's not as though it's a soap that washes out a stain. It's as though it's a fire that consumes completely. And it's a fearful verse because God isn't just the judge here, though He is, it says, then I will draw near to you for judgment. But he's not just the judge, he's also the witness, right? I will be a swift witness against, and then he lists out all these different categories of sinfulness, which, by the way, all of them, the penalty in the Old Testament law was that of death. A swift witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, those who turn aside the alien. And then here's the culmination. The most heinous of all offenses in God's eyes is the last one. It's a list that is building and building and building. And it ends with this. I myself will witness against those who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. I mean, imagine being in a courtroom where the star witness is an omniscient witness And unfortunately for you as the defendant, he is also the judge. He is a swift witness and a harsh judge to those who will not bend their knees to his standard. Penalty for all those sins is death. This is the worst of the worst to those who refuse to bow their knee. The point that Malachi is trying to make here is not to say, folks, just be pure. The point is that they all needed to understand that God needed to make them pure before they could be acceptable to Him. And how did He do that? He would do it through the life, the ministry, and the sacrifice of the one whom He was sending. And that's why that promise of the messenger of the covenant is so closely tied in to the purification that results from having a relationship with Him. You see, Jesus, the messenger of God's covenant, demonstrated the love of God by coming to live the life that we all should have lived die the death that we all should have died, to take upon himself the consequences of sin that we all should have borne. And in the process, his love produces purity amongst his people. 
So how can you be made right with God? How can your life be purified? We all know this, but just to remind us, through the work of Christ on your behalf, purifying you, making you a righteous offering that is pleasing to God, accomplishing a work on your behalf that you could never have done for yourself. With the refiner's fire and a fuller's soap, he burns away the blackness of your depravity. He washes the stains that were left by your iniquity. And we ask ourselves the question, was he up to the challenge? Well, let's go over to the book of Hebrews because Hebrews and the author of Hebrews really exposits that idea for us pretty specifically. I'm going to run through these verses pretty quick and just read them for us. But Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Was Jesus up to the task of coming as the messenger of God's covenant of salvation on our behalf? Was He up to the task of coming to provide purification for those who would trust in Him? Well, Hebrews 1.3 Jesus is the exact radiance of God's glory and the representation of His nature. He upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, what did He do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Mission accomplished. Work done. It's not as though there's chronic, ongoing purity that he needs to produce. He has already done the work necessary to purify all of your sin. Flip over to chapter 9, verses 13 through 15. The author of Hebrews keeps going. He says, look, folks, Christ is better. The work of Christ is more effective than anything that ever came before. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify the cleansing of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason He is the messenger of the new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. Look at chapter one or cha chapter ten, verse one. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. The implication is then you needed Christ. And that's exactly what he says in verse 10 of chapter 10. By this we will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God and from that time onward until his enemies were to be made a footstool at his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are now sanctified. Verse 19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us now draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, this is the great result of the love of God on display for His people. You now have not only been saved, you have also been made pure so that you can walk in full relationship to God, in full restoration to Him, because of the purifying work of His Son, Jesus Christ, the only active agent that could possibly purify you, you now have the ability to draw near with confidence, knowing that God will fully accept you because of what Christ has done on your behalf. You see, the love of God produces guaranteed salvation. The love of God also produces purification in your life. But then if we go back to Malachi chapter 3, we also find that the love of God demands a response. God says, I've made my choice, verse 6. I've made my choice not to destroy you. 
He says, For I, the Lord, do not change, and therefore, O sons of Jacob, you are not consumed. See, God's people in this day were grossly misunderstanding what was happening. God brings them to the point of a decision and demands, his response, demands their response. Will you recognize your foolishness or will you continue in your own ways? And God's response to their question is to point out the utter foolishness of the way that they were thinking. He says, how could you ever impeach my character? You know, in our country, we have this thing called impeachment, right? Where when things really, really get out of control, we have a safety valve, right? We have a safety valve in our country to throw out the president. It's a chance for him to prove that he is upright. It's a chance for the people to prove that you are not upright. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But here in this passage, God is essentially saying to these people, don't ever try to impeach my character. Don't try to reject me as your sovereign leader. Because by now, I think they've seen the reality, we've seen the reality, and God was wearied having to prove it over and over again. Because if He were the kind of vacillating, unsure, uncommitted, capricious God that they accused Him of being, then He would have crushed them in their tracks a long time ago. And God says in verse 6, I've made my decision. I don't change. I've decided to love you. And because of that, I don't consume you. That's my decision. No matter how unfaithful they are, He would be faithful and bring salvation to them. He says, you've seen my decision to provide you with salvation, to love you unreservedly. But verse 7, He says, now what are you going to do? How are you going to respond? In verse 7. That's what he says to these people. And Malachi challenges them to respond correctly. And yet he points out the reality that they were not. He says, From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and you have not kept them. God now says, Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But then here's the decision made by God's people whom he had loved so very deeply. But you say, how shall we return? And the prophet shakes his head and says, you have clearly been told how to return. Return to me. Turn aside from your ways and from the ways of your fathers. Come back. But the people would not do it, despite the pathway laid out before them. They say, we don't know how. We don't clearly see how to get back. And it's not really worth it anyway, because even if we do come back, God's not guaranteed to be there. See, they make their decision, and it's the wrong one. And here in the face of renewed promises, in the face of God's decision to be faithful to them, they decide to use the worst strategy of all time. What do they do? They play dumb, right? They roll over and play like they're dead. Well, we don't know. God hasn't told us how to get back to himself. Bad strategy. And for them, there would be consequences. Their smug little kingdom that looks so good on the outside, it would be tormented. For the next 400 years, they would be racked by wave of upheaval after wave of upheaval. The Persian Empire would disintegrate. Alexander the Great would roll through town. And once he died, the Greeks would take over and Antiochus Epiphany would roast them in frying pans alive. He would defile their own temple. The Maccabean revolt would follow that and it would drive out the Greeks, but it would end up defiling the priesthood and dismantling their entire religious system. Following the Maccabees, the Roman onslaught would bring a full sense of national slavery to a foreign power. And then, finally, after 400 years of chaos, bloodshed, torment, brought on by their own foolishness and stupidity, something happens. Go to John. Chapter 1, and let's see what God does. People think, God's lost interest. He's no longer faithful. He promised us that He was going to send a messenger to warn us when the messenger of the covenant would come. And it hasn't happened yet. John 1, 6, and it's so understated, it's so innocuous, that it's almost laughable. Look, verse 6. And then there came a man from God whose name was John. 
I mean, that verse should land like a ton of bricks on the heads of these people. He's here. The messenger to pave the way is here. John came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the capital L light. And then this, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And then you roll through the life of Christ and you see him showing up in his temple. The messenger of the covenant suddenly appearing out of nowhere in his temple, just as was prophesied in Malachi, ready to bring salvation to his people. This wasn't supposed to be hard. They had been warned. The warning light was flashing. The messenger who was here as the foreigner to pave the way was there in their midst. And then Christ shows up in his temple. And yet, John 1, if you keep reading, says that he came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. And it became clear that once again, these rebellious people had missed the forerunner. They had missed not only the forerunner, but they missed the messenger of the covenant himself. And what was God's response? Well, we'll finish with this. Turn to Matthew chapter 17. This now is going to be powerful stuff. God's people missed the forerunner. God's people missed the light of the world. And it has become clear by this point in Christ's ministry that they are not going to get it at all. And here is the result. All men turn away from Christ in Matthew 16. Jesus foretells his own death. Jesus knows where this is heading. Not only because he was omniscient, but because it was obvious that this wasn't going well. Then in verse 17, after mankind has rejected the light of the world, after they have said, we don't delight in you, the one that we should have delighted in, Malachi 3.1, this happens. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became white as light. What's happening? He's demonstrating himself to be the exact representation of the glory of God. He's lifting up the corner of the veil and showing these faithful disciples exactly who he was. And behold, Moses and Elijah, the two messengers of the covenant from the Old Testament, appeared to James, John, Jesus, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, I mean, he doesn't know what to say. I mean, his foot is so far back in his throat that he's basically swallowed his toes. He says, but because he can't help himself, he shouts out, Lord, it is real good for us to be here. And if you wish, I'm going to make three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. What's he saying? He's saying, you're just another one of these messengers of the covenant who's come to bring us great news about salvation. And Peter gets it. I mean, this is all about the salvation of mankind. But God says, Peter, you have radically misunderstood the nature of the messenger of the covenant. He's not just another Moses. He's not just another Elijah. He's not just another John the Baptist. You see, he's not here to be the one who clears the way for salvation, Peter. You see, Peter, he is salvation. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud. This is now God the Father speaking. And he says, everything, that every single human being around the globe where Jesus was or was not should have been saying. They should all have been bowing down before his feet saying, Hail, King of the Jews, Lord, Master, the Sovereign Savior of the planet, the one who will take away our sins and wash away our iniquities, the one on whom we've been waiting, the messenger of God's covenants, the one that has been promised to us, the one, Malachi 3, in whom we now delight. That's what they should have been saying in it. They were saying, get out. And God, it's so tender. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I delight. Listen to him. Salvation had come. They failed to hear. They failed to be made clean and pure because they would not believe. 
And so God takes his offer of salvation, the divine stamp upon his divine son, the embodiment of all the promises ever made throughout all of human history. And he turns around and gives it to you, to me, and formulates the church before their very eyes, making the message of salvation a universal blessing to all mankind, just as he had promised to do. That is the love of God for you and for me. That is the God who loves us with a love so profound that it brings us our own salvation. Powerful stuff. Thank you for your patience going through this series. Thank you for your help with those surveys. If you wouldn't mind, just pass those down to the end of the aisle and just leave them there. I'll pick those up on the way out the door, but I'm very grateful for that. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you, even beyond all those things, for your own character that has provided so wonderfully for us. We are grateful to you, and so our hearts worship because we see your great love on display for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.